Hey, uh, as was mentioned, Debbie and I were, were on vacation for a while, and um, uh, I appreciate Travis, all, all he did uh, while we were gone as well. But um, I was thinking, uh, I really enjoyed uh, my time with my wife, you know, uh, hanging out with her. And one of the things that I, I found out she liked was the, uh, the coffee pot. Uh, is not a carafe, it was a glass deal. And so, as you know, when, when you let coffee sit on, on, a, um, on a glass burner for a while, it gets, it gets burned, right? So, so I, I would take the coffee and put it in her thermos because she likes to drink out of a cup and pour from the carafe, her, her carafe, into the, the cup. And she said to me, I like, I like when you do that. So what do you think I did from then on? That's exactly what I did. In fact, when we got home, I did the very same thing. Why did I do that? Because because I love her. Because she mentioned that she enjoyed that. I took that step. And so it was motivation for me to express my love to her in a very simple, practical way. Which in turn, for each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ, when we read God's word and we realize what pleases him, what honors him, we should want to do that. Why? Because we love him and we know how much he loves us. That's the motivation. And so I just want to encourage all of us this morning, you are here on purpose. All around the world today, there are churches that are gathering people together. Some will hear about social issues and social problems. But I believe the majority of churches around the world are hearing the gospel, the God's word being taught. And what a privilege that is. And we want to lift up that great name of Jesus Christ because that's what's most important. When it's all said and done, God put a soul in you and a soul in me. And he did that on purpose. Why? Because... A soul is eternal. It's not temporary. The bodies that we're living in, these bodies are dying every single day. But a soul lives forever. And God loved you and me enough that he sent his one and only son to the cross to pay for your sin debt and my sin debt in full. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn his forgiveness. He shed his blood offering that sin sacrifice. He took my place, your place. And we put our faith in Him, our trust in Him. There's that relationship that's begun. It started. And He wants to spend eternity with you. Why? Because He loves you. And so out of that love, when we recognize how much He loves us, when we read His love letter, the Bible, and realize what honors Him and pleases Him, like putting that coffee in a carafe, we obey him because we love him. See? It's an incredible thing, incredible opportunity. And so we get to do that. Today we begin a brand new series in the book of Revelation. And it's an honor to be able to teach from that book. On the back of your program, there's an outline that you can follow along. Most of the verses are there that we're going to be reading from. If you don't have a Bible, 
or if you would like to have a hard copy of the Bible, they're on the back table up against the wall. They're free. We encourage you to take it and read it and follow along. In fact, this morning, with those blanks that you have on your program, we encourage you to pull out your pen and fill in those blanks. And here's the cool thing. The answers are given to you on the screen. So, so it's not going to stress you out. It's not going to make you anxious this morning, but quite the contrary, it's going to be an opportunity where we can walk through uh, this chapter together to learn more about Christ. In 1870, a pastor visited the denominational college, and he stayed at a home of one of the school's professors. And one evening, they were sitting around the table having tea together, and the pastor said to his friend, I believe the Bible states that nothing else can be invented. Now that's, you know, 1870. And the professor said, well, I disagree. In fact, I believe within 50 years, men will be able to soar through the sky like birds. And the pastor shook his head and he answered, I suggest that you not share your opinion because you may be accused of blasphemy. Flight is reserved for the angels. Well, you know, there's irony to that because the pastor's name Milton Wright, yes, the father of two famous boys, 30 years later who made history when they flew their heavier-than-air machine. Wilbur and Orville Wright were American inventors and pioneers of aviation. On December 17, 1903, they succeeded in flying their first free-controlled flight of a power-driven, heavier-than-air plane. Wilbur flew it for 59 seconds, 852 feet, quite an achievement. So every time today when you fly in a plane, it can testify to Milton Wright's error. Although the professor's prediction seemed unlikely at the time, it came true. Many people, when they read or want to read the book of Revelation, they read it with skepticism, much like Milton Wright. These things will never come true. It can never happen. Well, Milton Wright was proved wrong by his own sons. Your assumptions that this will not happen, it can't occur as you read through the book of Revelation, I can tell you, you're going to be wrong as well. From the beginning to the end of this book, this book points to Jesus Christ above all else. And so let's look at Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses to, to get us rolling. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the Word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and He blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says. Why? For the time is near. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that we have an opportunity to read Your Word. And each one of us in this room this morning have a choice. We have a decision to make. We can listen to it only, or we can listen and obey to what we hear. Help us, Lord, to take that step of obedience and honor you 
and please you because we love you. We thank you for the opportunities we have, Lord, these next moments of time that will get away. They'll never come back again. Help us to take full advantage of them. In Jesus' name, amen. From chapter 1 through chapter 22 of Revelation, you will find that the theme of this book is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In 1 Peter 1, uh, on the top of your program, that those two verses are there, 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, listen to what Peter writes. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. This is what John is writing about. These are the last days, friends. When we're looking at history of the world, you and I are living in the last days of human history. Peter writes about that. He says, now in these last days, Jesus has been revealed to us. I don't know about you, but I am grateful that Jesus revealed himself to me, and he revealed himself to you. And so we have an opportunity to pursue uh, that relationship. Now, all through human history, God has given us His Word as a roadmap. And He's foretold various signs and conditions through His prophets. These prophets in the Old Testament foretold the coming of the Messiah the first time. In fact, there were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that told about Jesus coming for the first time. I want you to think about that. For 300 prophecies, they were fulfilled through the life, the, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, mathematically speaking, for all you math guys and ladies out there, anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy, it's staggering. Mathematicians put it this way, one person fulfilling eight prophecies is a one in quintillion possibility. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. One person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies, well, let's just keep it simple. Only Jesus could do that. It's an incredible, incredible thing, which should reinforce the fact that you can trust the Bible. In the book of Revelation, there are things foretold about the future in all history. People will have their palms read, they'll go to fortune tellers, they'll look at the stars, the horoscopes to see the future. And I want to tell you something, that's all guesswork. But when you read God's Word, you can trust it because God never lies. He cannot lie. And proof in point, you go to the Old Testament, you see those prophecies about Jesus coming the first time, they have been fulfilled. They're are many prophecies about him coming back a second time. And I want you to know you can base your life on it, that it can happen. Now John, who wrote the Gospel of John in First and Second and Third John, writes this in First John 1, verses 1 and 3. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. 
This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There you have it. John saw Jesus in the flesh. He walked with him for three years. And now he's writing this book of Revelation. Now when you look at the Bible, you consider one quarter of it is prophecy. It's making predictions about the future. Now, if you look at the weathermen and ladies today, uh, it, it, it seems to me like their predictions are becoming less and less true. With the modern technology that they have at their disposal, you would think they would be able to hit the mark a little more, right? But when you look at the weather report, you might as well say, that's not going to happen, right? Aren't you glad that we don't have to live our lives based on what weathermen have to predict about how the weather's going to come and go? A tourist was driving through Texas one day, and he pulled into a gas station. And he noticed a rope hanging from a sign. The sign read, Weather Forecaster. And so he studied the rope for a while, and he was trying to figure out how can a rope foretell the weather. And so he went to the, the attendant and says, what does, what's this rope and the weather all about? And he said, well, it's pretty simple, actually. You see that rope when it wags back and forth? It's windy. When the rope's wet, it's raining. When the rope's frozen stiff, it's snowing. And when the rope's gone, yep, there was a tornado. So, so, God's predictions are a little different than that. When he makes a prediction, we know it's going to happen. And that's why when we read through the book of Revelation, we get to look at it with eyes wide open. We see Bible prophecy being fulfilled in our lives today. In fact, back in... in um, May 14, 1948, nation, uh, Israel became a nation for the second time. And when you look at the, the obstacles that stood in Israel's way for that to happen, they were huge. And the United States provided the last vote that was needed to allow Israel to have their independence for the second time in world history. When that happened, it became the tipping point in all of world history that you and I are living in the last days. It was prophesied in the Old Testament over and over again that Israel would come back a second time. Now, Milton Lindbergh put it this way, without the existence of the nation of Israel, we would not be able to say with certainty that we are living in the last days. That single event, more than any other, is the most prominent sign that we are living in the final moments before the coming of Jesus Christ. I would submit to you this morning that I am grateful that our nation is standing with Israel. We're supporting them. We're encouraging them. In the Middle East, they are a great ally. And we realize, you go to Genesis 12, God said, when you bless Israel, you will be blessed. I am, I am grateful that America is not rejecting the friendship of Israel. In fact, we moved our embassy into Jerusalem, which turned the world upside down. Friends, this morning, I want to tell you something. 
I am grateful that we're on Israel's side. And God supports Israel. And we're going to get into that more as we walk through the book of Revelation. Because Israel is pivotal in all of end-time history. So, number one in your notes, last book intro, verses 1 and 2. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, John, in writing down what he heard and saw, is not written to confuse us, to frighten us, to frustrate us. But in verse 1, we're told this is the purpose why this book was written, to show his servants the events that soon take place. Now, looking at that word revelation, in the Greek, it is the word apokalupis. That's where we get our word apocalypse. Now, when you think of apocalypse, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? You think of a catastrophe, right? Um, A cataclysmic event. But that's not what the word means. It simply means an unveiling or a disclosure. It means an uncovering, a revealing of something that's been hidden. For example, if we were in a community... And there was a statue that had been made, and it was sitting in front of City Hall. The band would be playing when you came out. And then the mayor would get up, and he would talk about this statue that's about to be unveiled. And then the artist who created the statue would get up, and he would talk about the commissioning of this particular statue. At the right time, at the right moment, what would happen? The sheet would come off the statue, and the statue would be revealed. That is the picture that God is giving to you and to me. When we look into the future, God is simply taking the sheet. He's unveiling for you and for me to be able to look into the future with accuracy to see how world events will occur. So don't be frightened when you read the book of Revelation. It's there on purpose as an unveiling to the future. God is giving you and I the honor and the privilege to be able to get a glimpse into the future. And so we see that when you walk through the book of Revelation, and even in chapter 1, you're going to see the word seven show up quite often. Seven lampstands, seven spirits before the throne of God, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven thunders. Why the emphasis on the number seven? Because in the Bible, the number seven means complete. It's perfect. Seven days makes a complete week. The number seven denotes complete revelation of God, complete judgment, a complete church. And as we get into this book, we're going to ask the simple question, why is there so much symbolism? Why there's some kind of weird language going on here? Well, there's a reason. First of all, Revelation functioned like a spiritual code for the early church. The Roman government was persecuting the first century Christians, and they were carefully examining any documents that were confiscated. So it would be like if you were living in Germany in the 1930s, and you were writing a letter from Germany to the United States, and that mail would be censored by the Nazis. 
if they found something in that letter that was critical of Germany and its government, the Gestapo would ring your doorbell and you would simply disappear into the night. That's exactly what was going on in Rome at this time in history. They were censoring people's mail. When John was writing letters to the churches, the seven churches, the Roman authorities would read the mail. And then he would say, what's up with this? It made no sense to them. But as followers of Jesus Christ, they were fully aware of what John was writing. That was the reason. Symbolism does not weaken over time as well. For parents that are reading the picture Bible to your kids, you realize how cool that is when you get your kids around you and they see the pictures with the stories. It holds their attention. That's exactly why John was using this symbolism because the symbols stick in your mind. They're visual reminders of who Jesus Christ is. And we see in verse 1, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. Did John think that these events would take place in his lifetime? He might have. The word soon take place, it's the Greek word in tachai. That's where we get our word tachometer. And for all you guys out there who remember the muscle cars back in the day, I remember the GTO 1968. Man, they had some nice tachometers, you know, on the dashboard. And man, for a young man, you get that tachometer, the RPMs, whoo! It's fun. It's fun. Well, John's using that word tachometer. Well, not really. In tachai, it means to unfold in a period of time. That's what he was referring. Once these events start occurring, they will unfold swiftly until they reach their conclusion. So when John's writing must soon take place, he's saying when these begin to happen, they will unfold quickly. It's going to happen. And I think all of us can realize today with the technology that we're seeing with our, even our cell phones, how they've changed from year to year. And the technology advancements they're making every six months, it's hard to keep up with it. Friends, we are, we are racing. We have to race through life to keep up with the changes that are happening in our culture. And that's exactly what John is writing about. These events must soon take place. Chuck Swindoll put it this way, God's final message to humanity remains clear. In the end, good will triumph over evil, wickedness will be judged, and the righteous will receive their rewards. That's what Revelation is all about. We need to remind ourselves that at the end of the day, good will triumph over evil. I know it looks like evil is triumphing right now, but that's not the last chapter. Wickedness will be judged, and the righteous will receive their reward. Number two, the last book's benefits. Look at verse three. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So when you look at chapter 1 in Revelation, we can go all the way to the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 7. It repeats what this verse 3 says. Look, I am coming soon. 
Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. What's that about? Out of all the books in the Bible, this is the only two, these are the only two places we're told when you read this particular book, you're going to be blessed. What's the word blessed means? Well, it means to be happy. But it goes deeper than that. The more you read this book, the more you understand about Jesus Christ and his plan for your future, the happier you will be. You're going to realize that what's going on in this world right now is not the last chapter. We will live in heaven forever and ever. And as we keep God's word and apply his truths to our lives, it will bring a sense of happiness and our inner core. Earl Palmer Bible teacher put it this way, the Greek word does not express superficial sentiment, but instead the rugged and tested assurance that it is a good thing to be walking in the pathway of God's will. Blessed is God providing hope and encouragement to believers in the trials that they face in this life. Just last uh, October 23rd, a couple weeks ago, Toby Mack's 21-year-old son was found dead in their home. Yes, that would take your breath away. Toby Mack got the attention of the world when he posted on Instagram. He said, my wife and I would want the world to know this. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under-the-table deal with him. Like, we'll follow you, God, if you bless us. No, we follow God because we love him. God is the God of the hills and the valleys. I appreciate that about Toby Mack. It tells me that the roots of his faith have gone down deep into God's love. He has built his relationship on the rock. So when the storms and the wind and the waves come crashing through, his house is still standing. How is that in your life, friend? You building on the sand or you building on the rock? You read God's word, it's interesting. It's interesting. God blesses those not only who listen to the message, but obey what it says. So this morning, you're listening, but when you move the envelope, you have a responsibility. Are you going to obey it, or are you not? See, That's up to you. You can listen, but there's another step, and that's obeying what you're listening to. So, number three... Jesus up close, verse 4. John began introducing the central character of the book of Revelation here. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. Notice John goes back to the cross. The cross where John stood with Jesus' mother and watched him die for the sins of the world. He's going back and putting worth and value. That is what's most important. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. You can almost hear John go, whoo! 
And then he goes on about Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. And when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Aren't you glad for that? Satan had the keys of death and the grave until Jesus went to the cross. He died and was buried, and he rose on the third day, and he took those keys away from the enemy. That's great news. And John writes in verse 4, talking about grace and peace to you, from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. The grace, you and I, when we put our faith in Christ, have experienced God's grace, His unmerited favor. We didn't deserve to be forgiven, but God extended His grace when we put our faith in Him because He paid it all, and He paid it in full. And you and I experience His grace and His peace because our relationship with God has been reconciled. Verse 4b talks about this sevenfold spirit before his throne. What's that all about? It's not talking about seven different spirits. It's talking about the Holy Spirit being symbolically represented. And we need to go to, to Isaiah eleven two because it gives seven qualities of the Holy Spirit here. And the Spirit of the Lord, that's number one, will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, that's two. And understanding, that's three. The spirit of counsel, that's four. And might, that's five. And the spirit of knowledge is six. And the fear of the Lord is the seventh. There's something about the fear of the Lord, friends. We've kind of lost that, I think, in America, where we've made God our buddy. He's our buddy. And we can take God, and we can take him, and we can leave him. But man, when John is experiencing this revelation about who Jesus is, There's something about the fear of the Lord, that He is awesome, He's all-powerful, He's a holy God. And we see in verses 5 and 6, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the world, all glory to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding His blood for us. And that's not all. He's made us a kingdom of priests for God, His Father. So John is pointing back to the cross as he is hearing and seeing all this greatness about who Jesus Christ is. Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Some of you this morning might be living in fear. You're living in fear of the unknown, and you're living in fear about the future. You're worrying about your life. What's it, what, where's it going to end up? What's going to happen? Everything in this world seems to be falling apart, God, and you're living in fear. John experienced the right hand of God on himself, and he said, Jesus said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I'm the living one. And this morning, Jesus is coming to you, and he's saying, don't be afraid. I hold the future. And I hold your life in my hands. There's no greater place for that to be. And so we're grateful to the Lord. 
Number four, last book's beginnings. Look at verse two. Who faithfully reported everything he saw. John heard something, he saw something, and he did something. He heard a voice, he saw a vision, and he fell, and he worshiped. And he wrote down everything that God had directed him to do. Now, this isn't John's original material. You know, he's not, he's not sitting on, on the island saying, man, i got so much time on my hands, I'm going to write a book. It'll become a bestseller on Amazon. That's not what he's doing here. He wrote down what Jesus told him to write. That's where the material is coming from. It's coming from heaven itself. And in verse 2, who faithfully reported everything he saw, this is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's a testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's supervised by Jesus Christ himself. And John wrote that book down, word by word. Number five, wow, it's loud. Wow, it's loud. Verse 10b, John's writing, Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Verse 11, it said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Perigam, Thyatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like the mighty ocean waves. Let's take a look at a map here. We're looking at the seven churches. So today, uh, these churches would be located in, in the country of Turkey. And I think all of us would say Turkey has been in the news quite often. You go to the western end of Turkey and you see those seven churches. Um, you see Syria, south of, of, of Turkey. And of course, we know Turkey has gone into Syria um, you see Iraq and Jordan on the, on the south end. Let's go to the next map here. And off of Turkey was an island, Patmos. And that's exactly where John has been set up. Because he's a follower of Jesus Christ, the Roman government tried to kill him. They dropped him in, in a boiling vat of oil, and that did not kill him. That spooked the Roman authorities so much they said, we got to get rid of this dude. There's no way he should have survived this. And they put him on an island with other criminals called Patmos. About 25 miles off the coast of Turkey, uh, 40 miles from Ephesus. John writes Ephesus first because Ephesus, the church in Ephesus was John's home church at the time. So there's, there's the island looking out from Turkey. Wow, it's loud. Wow, it's loud. John heard this, this voice so loud, it sounded like a trumpet blast. It wasn't some quiet whisper, you know? God was getting his attention. Verse 15, and his voice thundered like a mighty ocean waves. Man, when you've been by the ocean and there are crashing waves, it is noisy, right? God Sometimes it gets noisy in church. Have you noticed? Some of you may have gone and grown up in a denominational church where you had a whisper, you know, and you had to be very quiet. I'm grateful that we can be loud in church. It's going to be loud in heaven. 
And there's not going to be a booth where you can get some earplugs to tone it down, man. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to enjoy the loud. It's going to be, wow, this is loud. And I love it. (laughs) John was on this island, and he heard the loud voice. In fact, if you were to go to the island of Patmos today, the guides would direct you to the cave where they felt John lived. It's a little cave with a church built around it. Locals would find this crack in the rock, and they would tell you that's where the trumpet voice came from, and that's why that rock was cracked. Now, we don't know if that's true, but here's the deal. John heard a loud voice, and it was loud, and it got his attention. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. We stand on that this morning. We don't have to live in fear. We live in the confidence that Jesus has it all together. Number six, what do you see? Verse 13, standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Now, I have to tell you, I went online looking for this image. And nothing could do it justice. You know, it just cheapened what John wrote here. And so you need to use your imagination with the details that he writes down about who Jesus is. When you think of Jesus, what's your first impression of him? What do you see in your mind? Well, here, when you start looking at what's going on, you see this greatness. Incredible. Eyes of fire. What's that about? Jesus can see into the hardest heart. And then it says um, that his feet were like bronze, and that bronze is is symbolic of judgment. So God is going to judge, and God sees your condition and what you're going through. And we see that he held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. So there's your question being answered right here. The seven stars are the angels. They're not demons. They're angels. They're God's messengers that he uses to the churches. They are stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What is God doing? He's endorsing the fact of his church. There's coming a day when Jesus, the groom, is coming for his bride, the church. Jesus puts so much emphasis on his church. Unfortunately, in America today, we're we're lowering the value and the importance of being a church, the church, the body of Christ. You know, we can do whatever we want, when we want, and how we want. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to honor your church, your bride. You put a a lot of emphasis on your church, and so, Lord, I'm going to do the same thing with my life. But we see the seven lampstands. We think of a Jewish person would think of a menorah. When they would go into the holy place in the tabernacle, the menorah would be there, the seven candles. It gives light. It dispels the darkness. It shows people a way out. Jesus is like the sun. 
He's our source of light. And then standing in the middle of the lampstand was someone like the Son of, of Man, which is Jesus Himself. He's wearing this long robe, a gold sash across His chest. So, how do you see Jesus? Maybe we need a new perspective of who He is in the days that we're living. Number seven, obedience is best. Look at verse 19. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. John writes what he saw to the seven churches. Jesus told him to write it down, and John obeyed. Obedience, as we hear, as we read this book of Revelation, we talked about it, we have the opportunity to obey And John is endorsing the fact that he obeyed what Jesus told him to do. And you and I have the same opportunity this morning. When we read God's Word, we have a choice of either obeying or disobeying. John says obedience is best. John heard, John saw, and John obeyed. We can learn from our good friend John this morning. Number eight, hope for the future. Look at verse seven. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. What's that about? That's talking about the people that rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said when he came to this earth, he came to bring division. And all he was was saying was, I realize when I come into a room, People either will respond to me or they will reject me. It's automatic. People will push God out of their lives. They'll reject his offer of salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of their sins. Well, in this verse, all the nations of the world will mourn for him. They're going to mourn because they're going to realize they have to stand before God one day and give an account of their life. Yes, there's going to be some mourning going on. Why didn't I put my faith in Christ? Why did I procrastinate so long? Judgment will fall, as we'll see in a few chapters. Hope for the future. Don't be afraid. (laughs) That gives us hope for the future, doesn't it? I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and a grave. Man, that sure gives me hope for the future. I don't have to be consumed by everything collapsing around me. Instead, I can keep my eyes on Jesus Christ. Judgment will fall. Jesus will reign forever. And He will create that perfect world for you and I to live in forever and ever. That's hope for the future. Number nine, exiled or not, look at verse nine. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. What John is saying is he encourages us to read this book, Revelation. He tells us to obey what we read so we can be blessed. And John is not thinking he's living in some superficial world. Well, because I'm living for God, he's going to keep me from all hardship and difficulty and trials in life. Quite the contrary. John's reward for living for Jesus Christ 
for testifying about Jesus being the Son of God, he gets stuck on an island. This island of Patmos, he's isolated. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit, and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. John stood at the cross, and Jesus told John to take care of his mother, Mary. That's how close Jesus was to John. And even though John had this close relationship with Christ, he's exiled, he's isolated. He's all alone. John could have very easily become bitter against God. You know, is this fair? I've lived my life in honoring Christ, and I get stuck on this island. I get stuck in boiling oil, and what's this all about? No, he's not bitter because he's realizing on this island of Patmos, when he's living in isolation, God is giving him a revelation of who Jesus is like he never saw before. And this morning, you may feel like you're stuck on an island somewhere. You're exiled from your friends or family. You know, your job isn't working out. You feel all alone. It's not fair. Take this opportunity, as John did, and he worshiped on the Lord's day. He worshiped. He was grateful. His relationship with Christ was right where it needed to be. Just last Thursday, Debbie and I were stuck in Atlanta airport. When you fly non-rev, standby, it's a challenge. We, We weren't able to get on the flight we were supposed to. You know, you land, you get on the flight, boom. Nice and easy. No, we, we weren't able to get on the flight. And so we went to the international terminal. There's a place in there where you can get some food. And, and uh, as the day's progressing, hours, hours, there's so many people, and it's hot. And this dude on the right is speaking a language I never heard before, and he's loud. And this lady right sitting right across from me, she's on FaceTime on her phone, talking real loud in a language I don't know. And this lady over here is talking real loud on her cell phone. And it's loud. It's like they're speaking into microphones. And after a while, I can tell you, man, I, thought, I can't take this anymore. You know? It, it's loud. It's, it's hot. And I don't, and these people are talking in languages I don't know what they're saying. So I realized I could do something about it. And I took out my phone, I pulled out my earbuds, and I dialed into this song that you're going to hear right now. There is a sound that changes things, the sound of his
John, on the Lord's Day, chose to worship when he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Life isn't fair. John could have felt sorry for himself. God gives you an opportunity to make that same decision. Whatever situation and circumstances you're in in your life, you can choose to worship. I'll tell you what, I cranked it. My little eardrums were vibrating. But I was singing, man. Woo! In that international terminal, God's presence filled that room. That's exactly what John is saying, friend. In these last days, all hell is breaking loose, but don't be afraid. Worship. Keep your eyes on who's most important, and that's Jesus. Psalm 711, God is an honest judge. He's going to have the final word. Until then, we take the example of a group of women from the Dinka village in the Sudan. Because government soldiers ravaged their settlement, brutalizing and butchering many of the villagers. The horror gave birth to hope. A remnant of survivors, the wives, the mothers of the murdered and the missing, gathered sticks and tied them together in the form of small crosses. And before they buried the bodies and mourned their losses of their loved ones, they pushed these crosses into the ground, not as memorials for their grief, but as declarations of their hope because they were Jesus' followers. The crossed sticks expressed their living faith in a loving God who could and will make sense of such a tragedy. Be reminded that God understands injustice. He sure does. He will right all the wrongs, and He will heal all the wounds. And He is preparing a place for you and for me. Where no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice. That day is coming very soon. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity we have to live for You, We thank you for this book of Revelation. It's a book to encourage us, Lord, in world events. To realize that, Jesus, you are in control. That you will be with us, Lord. You will never pack it up and leave us all alone. This world that we're living in is only temporary. And you want to encourage us to look beyond this world to heaven a place that you're preparing for us even right now. I pray for each one of us, Lord, if we have allowed distractions, um, the accumulation of life, the loneliness um, on an island of Patmos, we feel sorry for ourselves, we feel like it's not right. God, may we change that perspective today to worship you, Lord, 
as John worshipped you. Where you gave him a fresh picture of who you are in the midst of his challenge. God, may we pursue you as we live in these last days, reminding ourselves that one day we will see you face to face and it will be worth it all. Thank you, Lord, for this perspective you've given to us this morning. I pray your blessing on each person in this room and that we will read your word, not only read it, but we will obey it so that we will be blessed with your hand upon each one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.